This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Harpist and arranger Alyssa Wright has created a gift that just keeps giving. About 20 years ago, she was asked to create this holiday collection to benefit a couple of organizations, and she never actually released it. Well, she's discovered that people still love it 20 years later, and they thought, well, why don't we make a formal release so other people can hear it and enjoy it as well? And that's what she's done. It's a recording called A Christmas Feast, and that's what we hear about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. I'm talking with Alyssa Wright, who has just, I guess, basically reissued a Christmas recording called A Christmas Feast. It's never been available before, uh, even though you made it in 2001 for friends and people who were close to you. Now we get a chance to hear it as well. And Alyssa, you are a composer, an arranger, a harpist, a storyteller, and a teacher. And I would love for you to start by just kind of introducing yourself to us. Where do you live, and how do you spend your time? Well, I live about an hour north of New York City, and we've been here. It's a really beautiful uh, community that used to be a summer lakeside community, but now, of course, it's a urban suburban but a lot of lovely places to walk and nature and see deer out the window and so on. And and I have a studio here where I teach and I spend, really I spend a lot of my time writing and arranging music. I sort of devote my mornings to that. I don't teach or take other obligations in the morning unless it's unavoidable. And then uh, I, I, I practice. I, I'm still an active harpist playing for various uh, local and less local events. And uh, I do a a fair amount of theatrical work. For a long time, I had my own theater company. And we did settings of the myths and fairy tales that I've arranged because it's been one of my passions. And uh, so I would do sometimes the storytelling or sometimes in combination with other people. Uh, Now I found it's really wonderful to have another storyteller because then I can just focus on playing the harp and they can walk around and play with the audience and so on. But it is uh, stories have always been a big passion of mine. Great, all the great classic stories. So I do spend some of my time doing settings and arrangements of stories. And right now, actually, I'm in the midst of doing a full-length ballet based on the story of the Snow Queen. So you know, there's and then there's teaching. I have a number of a huge range of private students from you know little kids to seniors who are first-time harpists and harp is wonderful that way because even as a an older person you can take it up and there's it can be extremely satisfying so i i love with work, working with all kinds of uh, people it's just for me it's a great pleasure so that gives you an idea <laughs> yeah that's so fascinating to me because i've always thought oh the harp would be a beautiful instrument to learn and i thought well that's probably something you have to start really early on. I mean, look at all those strings. I mean, <laughs> how, I mean, just, I'm just curious, how do you start somebody out on the harp who's never played it before? Well, you know, it's um, the thing about the harp. First of all, there are a lot of different kinds of harps. And what's called lever harps have become very popular in the last 50 years or so. 
So a person can play, you know, a harp that only has maybe 20 some strings. And there are people who, and the, there are various string tensions. So someone does not necessarily have to have the kind of strength that you need to play a classical pedal harp. And the wonderful thing about learning the harp at any age is it sounds good almost no matter what you do. And you can play wrong notes and it even, you know, I mean, just the pleasure. It's not like trying to tune a violin or a flute where you can't get a sound. You can get a sound. And, and actually often the sound from someone who's unschooled is very beautiful because there's a certain relaxation in it. So I, I find that it's, it's um, connecting people with things that they love, music that they love. If someone is coming to me as a senior or an or older person, aficionado, and just wants to learn to play, I try to find out, first of all, what kind of music they want to play. There's, there are beautiful Sephardic melodies. There are beautiful, simple music, music from the Renaissance that is not complicated musically, so you don't have to be an incredibly sophisticated player. And there are a lot of people who um, now have taken up the harp as therapy, and it's often used in hospice or in hospital settings. And for that, the technical skill required is very little. What's, there's more compositional and arranging skill required where you have to learn about modes and, and how to take a melody and maybe stretch it a little and do a little bit of variation. And as a composer, that is something that I have enough skill at that I can sort of help someone else know, how do you take a melody? And, and turn it from a 3-4 melody to a 4-4, four, four, you know, four beats and so on. So it's it's very uh, delightful. And it's, it's not so complicated at all if someone wants something. They have to want something. Well, you clearly have a passion for it, and you've been doing this for many years now. How did the harp become your instrument of choice? I, I really don't know. I know all I really know is that my mother tells me that as soon as I could talk, when I would hear it, I would say, I play that. And I know originally I went to, I was a, grew up in Chicago and was in the Chicago public school. And my parents thought they didn't know what musicians, they were both teachers, educators. My father taught at the University of Chicago and they didn't have a connection to a musical community in any particular way. So they gave, put me in an after school program for learning piano. And it was really pretty ridiculous. We, we would move our fingers around on these cardboard keyboards that didn't make any sound. And even as a six-year-old or seven-year-old, I thought, this is stupid. <laughs> you know, just, you're just learning to push your fingers places, but it's not making any music. And so I, I said, no, no, no. And, and so my mother kept asking everybody and then found out that our dentist's daughter was an amateur harpist. So she started me out on the harp. And after a year, she said, I've taught her pretty much everything I can, and she needs to find a teacher. So my mom contacted the woman who was the, um, I guess, the second harpist with the Chicago Symphony. And the woman said, well, I don't teach children. And my mom said, well, please, will you at least advise us? And so I went there, and I played for her. And she told my mom to go get a cup of, go buy a cup of tea somewhere, and that she was going to start teaching me that day. So I had my first lesson with her. So that's how it started, and I, I don't even know why, but I, I guess I just felt that was my instrument. Well, you have had a very distinguished and diverse career as a harpist. Um, we haven't even mentioned most of the things you've done. You've worked with the Metropolitan Opera. You toured with Patti Lapone and Kevin Klein, and you've been in traditional Irish bands. Of all the things that you've done so far, 
What has maybe been the most surprising thing to you, like something you never thought you would have done? Well, that's an interesting question. It's very interesting because when I finished Juilliard, I knew that I didn't want to do any of the traditional things that harpists did. I didn't want a studio job. I didn't want an orchestra job. I didn't want the opera. I didn't want the ballet. You know, I just, um, hmm. I, I mean, I suppose the fact that I've become and got completely involved in doing storytelling and writing music and playing for this kind of thing, that was certainly something that had never occurred to me. It was sort of a calling that came through just a whim when I took a storytelling session with a wonderful, wonderful, world-famous storyteller named Laura Sims. And it inspired me. But I, it never, I would never have thought growing up that that's what I was going to do. And I never realized that this would, again, become my, my, the focus of my whole career. So that was actually pretty surprising. And I have to say, the, whole, the process of working with a director and learning how to have written something and then say, oh, okay, that's going in the trash. We're not using that. Or to take something that, that uh, says, well, we know we need this twice as long. And, and to be able to just have that flexibility uh, as a, both a composer and performer, that was something that certainly was not part of my education growing up. When growing up, it's this is how it is, and these are the right notes, and these are the wrong notes. And I did a lot of very contemporary new music and until I realized I didn't actually like listening to any of it. It was more about conquering the, conquering the mountain than it was actually. It was a, that wasn't actually my passion, but I, I learned a lot from doing it. So it was like, wow, okay, this is a different world here. You, you create the atmosphere. You have to totally respond to what happens on stage. Somebody does something different and you have to... Uh, add five measures that you didn't plan on adding or take something away. They jumped, they skipped that whole portion. Well, I guess, like, like I just recently did, actually, a, I had a grant from the American Harp Society to do a setting of a Lenape creation story and did a live, wonderful live performance with a, a wonderful um, storyteller. And she turned two pages. So it was like, oh, I, I, all of a sudden we're not in this place I thought we were going to be. I have to do something different. And I love that. I, it's like life, you know, it's not so different. We're always in that state of we don't know what's going to happen, but we just think we know, you know. So It sounds like you've become quite the improviser. Well, in theater you have to. You really have to. Before we dive into the recording and talk about some of the individual pieces, I have to ask you about the instruments behind you. Because when I first looked, I thought, oh, there must be one for you and one for your student. But there's more than two harps, right? I have in this room at the moment, there are uh, three big harps and three little ones. You can't really see the little ones, as well as a, a uh, Egyptian-style harp that actually uses quarter tones that's packed away in one of my, in my closet there. So um, this, this harp that used the closest one is actually a slightly small harp. And the one in the far back, I'm babysitting for my husband's cousin who has uh, needed someone to care for it for a period of time. And some of my other harps I have, I have actually two harps upstairs, two little harps upstairs, and a couple of harps that I rent out for students when they need, you know, when they're just beginning and they don't have a harp and they don't know if they're going to start or not. It's more not a business, but it's more of a courtesy situation. So I've, I've acquired quite a few, and that's not uncommon. 
You know, you, you need to have always at least a backup harp because you go somewhere, something could happen. And you can't just go borrow one from any old friend. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're not a dime a dozen around the local music store. So you, you, you need to have a certain amount of backup. Do you, speaking of the instrument itself, which is not easy to cart around, do you have any behind-the-scenes stories of an interesting transportation, uh, you know, a transportation story, like, that you didn't imagine finding yourself in, trying to get your harp from one place to another? (laughs) Well, actually, one of my favorite stories, it's actually a story I fantasize about sending into the New York Times because they have this New York story situation. I At the time, I was living in the Bronx and driving a Volvo wagon, and I was on my way. It was in the middle of winter, very cold out, and I was on my way to a concert. Uh, I guess it was a duo recital with a friend who was a cellist, and I had very, barely gotten uh, onto this East River Drive, which is at the very top of Manhattan. And the concert I was going to was at the other end, which is Manhattan is long, for those of you who've never been here. And my car broke down. And here I am in my concert gown and the harp in the back. And I pulled off and, you know, I I called and the police came and they took me off to this uh, gas station that was right at the end of the highway. And the guy who ran the station says, you can't leave your harp there. You can't leave your car there. And he got in his he got in his truck with a buddy and they drove and got his buddy to get in my car and they pushed my car off backwards now this was a very risky thing for them to do it was that it there were enough lanes that it was safe but it was uh like you don't go backwards off of a highway but they actually drove pushed my car back to his gas station, pushing it backwards with his friend driving it. And then he loaned me the money to take a, to take a cab with my heart, you know, the, uh, some sort of what now would be an Uber to get to the concert. That was just amazing. I was so touched because he didn't know me, you know. And uh, that, that, was, that was quite an event. Uh, I have one other, one other rather humorous story. I, I was supposed to play for some kind of event. I don't, it was like a party or something, some social event at some club in Manhattan. And my husband and I drove in together with the harp in the back, and he dropped me off. It was like 40-something street in front of the place. And I all of a sudden panicked and thought I was at the wrong place. And I thought, oh, my God, he's dropped me off. At the, and this was also in the middle of the winter, by the way. I thought, oh my God, this is not the place. It's 10 blocks north. So I have a dolly for my harp and I have the book. So I'm, I run, also here I'm in my concert clubs, run up Fifth Avenue, pushing my harp on the dolly all the way to the other venue, which is 10 blocks north. And I get there and I realize I had been right in the first place. So I turned around and ran back the 10 blocks to the venue. And what the most hilarious thing for me was that no one batted an eye. See this lady running with her harp and then running back with her harp. And it's like, oh, well, that's just Manhattan for you. It was crazy. Nowadays, you would have gone viral. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Somebody would have been, you know, Somebody would have had their camera yeah, out. This lady oh, that's hilarious. 
Well, I was thinking about your first story. I was thinking about the story of the Good Samaritan. And, of course, that flows beautifully into music for the holiday season as we think about, um, you know, goodwill toward all and people really stopping and thinking about one another. And you have a Christmas recording, which is called A Christmas Feast. Tell me how the music and how this recording came to be, because it, too, is an interesting story. Well, we had a a request. Uh, I believe it was from a relative who has worked with the Vermont Youth Orchestra, and they wanted something for a fundraiser. I, I think that was the initial impetus. I'm not even sure what made us decide to make this recording. But I love the beautiful traditional holiday music, you know, and I was very interested in finding unusual, um, evocative pieces. And we had a deadline, so my husband Pete said, here you go, sit in this room and and make your arrangements. And so I had about a month, and I made the 20 arrangements. I just sort of sat all day at the harp and wrote out arrangements and then would pass it to him and he would copy out the the um, parts for the instrumentalists at night and I would go at it again the next day. And so they, they were all done within a month, all 20 arrangements. And for me, that the pressure of having no time to really overthink it was a blessing because I can get into that and try to fuss and make it, you know. And uh, so we recorded it and, had, you know, put it out and it was it was really it was just like it was delightful it was like I there was nothing that made me happier to spend the day trying to thinking like what instrumentation and uh I loved all the different colors you know not having to do all the same being able to pick and choose whatever instrumentation I wanted it it was I, I can't even say it was it was absolutely a blast We should mention that your husband plays French horn on this recording, and it sounds like he, too, has arranging and possibly composing skills as well. He may have some. He did, well, when he was younger. I mean, he's a world-class French horn player. He was one of 12 people invited once for one of the Philharmonic auditions, and he was the runner-up. And he was also a runner-up at a Metropolitan Opera audition where he also played with them as assistant horn for five years. So he's a world-class player as a French hornist. But when he was in high school, he played piano with a jazz ensemble in Vermont. So, you know, when you play jazz and you improvise, you certainly have a certain compositional skill and and whatever, but it, it was not his calling to actually spend his time doing that. But he's, he's my best critic. I mean, I show him everything. And he'll tell me... Ex- you know, he'll tell me straight if it's no good or if it's good. And I, I totally trust his, his assessment of things. And I'm very blessed in that. Because it's, it, I, you couldn't have a more supportive, helpful partner. And introduce us, introduce us to uh, the other musicians who appeared on this recording. Are they friends? Are they colleagues? Campo, fantastic flutist. She is both a friend and a colleague. At that time, my husband certainly knew her, and we he was very good friends with her now ex-husband, tuba player. So they were definitely in our musical circle. And the cellist also was quite a good friend of ours, Annabelle Hoffman. ¶¶ 
She plays, you know, also on total pro, wonderful levels, subbed at the Philharmonic often. Um, and she and I have done a, quite a number of things together over the years. She actually, I think she came into our life because she, horn was actually one of her passions and she took horn lessons from my husband. So she used to come over and take horn lessons. So that's how we got to let, get to know her. But um, at, that, at that time we lived just up the street from each other. So we would, you know, see each other and see each other's kids and so on. And then the violinist, Christoph Vitek, he's um, a colleague, played with my husband at the Gren in the Greenwich Symphony and, um, and around in New York City, and that's how we know him. So when you were creating these 20 arrangements, Alyssa, did you have all these people in mind, or did you create the arrangements and then go find your performers? Uh, I think we had the performers in mind when we were going to do uh, for the album. But I wasn't thinking specifically, I was really just thinking of the musical colors. So I wasn't thinking so much of, oh, this is how this person plays or anything like that. I just, I knew they were all great and they could all do anything. So I didn't feel limited in how I made the arrangements based on these, these players. You know, there's players of a certain level, you can just trust that they'll do a beautiful job. So I, I, I just had fun thinking of the colors I wanted. So we start off with Ding Dong Merrily on High. Why was this a good way to open up this recording? Well, it's very so cheerful and it's a little bit known, you know, more known than some of the other ones that we chose. And I think that's why. And also our uh, our produ well, our co-producer and, and the recording engineer, Steve Jankowski, had the idea to put in what he calls some ear candy, which is this, the little, the bells that, that he added. forth the spirit and I actually you know it's interesting that you asked that question because I'm now just also remembering when I was a very young child and for many years when we lived in Manhattan there were churches that were nearby that would ring bells sometimes when those bells would ring I would have to go to the window and open it just to listen to the bells <laughs> You've talked about the different textures and colors. Give me an example of where we hear textures and colors that maybe were surprising as you were putting these arrangements together. Hmm. Well, I know when we did um, the Carol of the Russian Children, which is not a well-known carol, uh, the flute has the solo and the harp is doing this sort of very fluid accompaniment and it's a very evocative, you know, I can I can sort of imagine the snow on the steps in Russia, you know. the image to have these uh, on the repeat you know if the melody repeats and coming back I brought in the other instruments other some of the other the cello and the horn
husband was saying, no, you can't do that with the horn. It's not going to work. He didn't think it would. And I just sort of knew that the horn doing this very simple counter melody would be beautiful. Sure enough, when we recorded it, he said, oh my God, and I said, he was wrong. It's actually one of my favorite tracks. And, you know, I think the thing is to, the picking an instrument Sometimes, you know, I've done various versions of many of these, like Patapan, which we did with cello in the recording. But I've actually done that also with my husband playing French horn, and our son is a professional trombonist, and we've done it with trombone. And it's maybe not so much that it's surprising, as that every instrument has such a distinct flavor and such a distinct atmosphere to it. And Patapan on cello has a very different atmosphere in a way than it when it's on French horn. And it's one of those things you can't really put in words. It's just wonderful, you know? It's like, why does somebody like chocolate and somebody else likes vanilla ice cream? You know, <laughs> just, they're both great. They're just different. When you mentioned your son being a trombonist, I immediately went to Gustav Holst, who is an arranger of the third piece on here, which I'm not familiar with, Lule My Liking. Tell me about this arrangement and this piece that might be new to others. It is, you know, it that piece is um, choral. And I, I actually have a huge library of music that I use just as source material, both to study, but also just, you know, to find interesting things. And I believe uh, this was from one of my books of choral music and that it was primarily a choral piece. Uh, and I just thought it was so beautiful and so unusual. It changes meter, it changes, it left room for a variety of voices to come forward, like in one place, you know, the cello. And I, I remember actually when we recorded it, she wanted to know what the words were, because how the understanding what the words are of a choral piece can really, really affect how you play it and what it means. And so it was some, the particular passage had some very religious words and it, it totally helped her feel like ya-da-da. very um, uh, emotional for her to, to talk about the, the words that were there. Uh, and I, I, I tend to like often like things that have a little bit of a modal flavor, which this 
does. It just has sort of unusual harmonies and sort of has an unusual lilting to it, which is part of, you know, changing the meter, but without feeling like super rhythmic, aggressive rhythmic changes. And I, I love that, that it sort of had this natural flow. Almost like water, you know, can go one way and then another way. And that fluidity was something that really attracted me about that piece. The carol, Still, 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 is just a beautiful... Um, oh, it's just, it's such a beautiful carol, and it's so perfect for the middle of winter. And you have arranged it very simply for violin and harp. Uh, I, I really felt, you know, still, 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 it has to be simple. I, I actually felt that way. And it's something that I have known that Carol since I was a child. My mother's side of the family were German immigrants from before the wars, before even the First World War. And my mother would sometimes sing to me in German when I was a child. And so that was a song that I knew from early on. I guess I felt like I wanted to keep the simplicity of it. And at the same time, there's something where you can do what's called harmonic substitution, where, where normally you would do a certain, the same chord, and then sometimes when you come back to it, you can put a different chord. And that sort of like goes, makes you go, oh, you know, wakes, wakes your ears up and sort of it also sort of highlights the meaning of a moment. So often towards the end of an arrangement, I think I did that in that arrangement, put a couple of harmonic changes at one point because I can say this sentence this way, but I can also say this sentence this way. It's kind of like that. And that's one of the fun, for, one of the things that's really fun for me about being an arranger is when you can find a different harmonization that kind of opens up uh, a new meaning to a melody. I'm curious about the Appalachian Carol. I think it's also called I Wonder as I Wander, which is uh, better known. Better known, it's got another name. And there's an interesting story about that carol. Apparently, um, there is someone who says that they wrote it, but essentially the story behind it is that this person was at, in Appalachia and some girl sang this melody to him, some teenage girl, as in exchange for money, you know, to raise money, to earn money. Like it's like a sort of like a begging thing. And he took it and wrote it down. And sort of no one knows how much of that melody is hers and how much of it is his. And uh, it does have such an authentic Appalachian, that sort of austere 
you know, like shape note singing, if somebody, if you know what that is, or that kind of simple, pure melodic strain is also very haunting, very, very haunting melody. seeing only one piece that is a solo harp? There's only one piece that's a solo harp, although actually it was, I, I made it a two harp accompaniment, and I'm playing, I actually overdubbed to make the accompaniment, to make the piece a little fuller. And that was a little tricky, because I had to sort of uh, because it wasn't exactly click, 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 click. I had to sort of try to guess how I was going to accompany myself. Um, and I've done various arrangements of that piece since, both solo and harp ensemble and so on. But I love the harp, but I like it in combination. It doesn't have to be the big feature all the time. And so I didn't really want to have a lot of solo harp. I, I you know, there's a lot of people who do wonderful solo harp, and I, I really wanted to explore the chamber music possibilities of all these carols. So I, I put that in there really more just for a little variety, but I suppose some harpists might say, oh, there's not enough harp, it doesn't feature harp enough. I had actually had someone make that comment once who was, and I thought, well, <laughs> sorry, you think so. <laughs> I like it, you know. I, I don't feel like I have to be the only, only character in the show. There is a piece that you say is practically a transcription from an oratorio by Camille Saint-Saëns. Why did you choose to include this piece? Well, it was so different than everything else. And I I have played the, you know, the harp part in the Saint-Saëns. It's just, I just somehow was drawn to it. It's so, so passionate, you know, and, it, and it, it's one of my favorite movements from the oratorio. And I think in the oratorio, there are actually more parts and I had to sort of combine them and find ways to sort of delegate it to enough people so that we could get through all of it. But. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of arranging. Some people call something even simple transcriptions arranging, and it is an arranging of a kind. But there is, you know, there's everything from direct transcription to compositional arrangements, which are also, you know, what are on the album. But it's like part of the range of everything I wanted to have. said that Carol of the Russian Children was one of your favorites. Is there another favorite here that you want to make sure we talk about? Well, Rise Up Shepherd. Rise Up Shepherd is definitely one of my favorites. You know, it's, I mean, a uh, I've always loved the spirituals, and 
I mean, I also fell in love with the way my husband played the horn part on it. But I also loved, you know, it starts out with a horn solo and then just adds the cello. comes in actually is a key change and it's very surprising. Uh, that piece has actually been featured uh, by people who teach arranging courses as an exemplary arrangement because I love the melody and I love that it just starts so simply and then just grows and grows so that by the time you hear the harp, uh, the harp entrance of the harp takes you to another world and it's a very distinct transition like, oh my goodness, this whole new thing is happening now. Um, from what starts out as a very, very simple sort of bare bones version. And I love that. Alyssa, why is this a Christmas feast, this recording? Why do you call it that? Uh, I guess, you know, any kind of impressions that you can take in that delight your senses are kind of a feast to me. You know, there are feasts for the eyes and feasts for the ears and feasts for the tongue and feasts of thoughts and feasts of sensations of all kinds. And I also felt like I want to feed people. I want to give something that that gives to some kind of nourishment to other people uh, in one way or another, either spiritually or emotionally or, you know, just even aesthetically. So feasts, uh, you know, certainly my hope that it's a Christmas feast and that whatever the spirit of the holiday is that is, you know, representing, it can mean so many different things and it means so many different things to so many different people. And from complete secular relationship to it, to a very deeply spiritual relationship and sacred relationship. And I just felt like I want to embrace it all and share it all and give it all. It's a new old recording with harpist Alyssa Wright and a few of her friends. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher.